Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome back. In the rich history of British broadcasting, there is an odd little thread that goes through it where young men, very very often from the leafier parts of the UK, discover an affinity with music that comes from maybe an African-American source or or an Afro-Caribbean source, and, and, you know, that becomes an obsession and then becomes a mission and then becomes a career. And I'm thinking of the likes of, you know, Mike Raven and uh, and more recently Tim Westwood. But nobody has done it for longer or more memorably or more successfully than our next guest, who's here to talk about his terrific book, My Life in Reggae. Would you please welcome David Rodigan. I have to say, I love saying David Rodigan. And do you ever think that your surname has been quite a good thing for you in the world of reggae? Seriously, it sounds like a reggae name, doesn't it? I think it has. And the, and the strange thing is, so many Jamaicans have said to me, what's your real name? it's <laughs> <laughs> Rodigan. Really? Uh, because it has a reggae name sort of ring to it. It does. And, um, on, and the Jamaican version is actually Radigan. Uh, rather than Rodigan, because of the way they pronounce the vowels. It's, so it's not, it's not Rodigan, Radigan. Right. And it's ri- often written Radigan. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the story of, of the gangster who took my Somebody name. Somebody took your name? Yeah. That's, that's right. He's from a notorious area of Kingston called Maxfield Park. And even hardened Kingston taxi drivers will not drive down Maxfield Avenue once the sun has set. And this particular gentleman was a Robin Hood character who ended up in New York and was shipping all sorts of things in and out of the country in various formats Um, and uh, was revered within the ghetto region of Maxfield, Kingston 12 because of what he did for the community and uh, in the 90s I was doing a show in New York and the same weekend that I was there it was Memorial Weekend or something um, uh, he got ambushed outside a nightclub in the Bronx and shot several times. So the headline was, Rodigan shot in New York. And um, it wasn't funny because people thought I'd been shot. And it was only later years that I realised that people kept saying, I've just come back from Jamaica and they were bigging you up in the dance and everything. And then I realised, well, it's obviously this chap and I never did meet him. And and, uh, he actually was killed in a shootout in Los Angeles at the end of last year. And I was down in Kingston just a few weeks ago, and I literally pressed on the Gleaner newspaper, the, uh, the, the download edition, and there was a headline, Rodigan Wake in Maxfield Avenue this week. Police think there might be trouble. 
Um, and it's quite bizarre. And I finally got, I, I, I finally got a photograph of, of him. And he was, he was not young, and he dyed his hair, dyed his beard, immaculately dressed. And the closest description I can have to his dress code is Michael Jackson. It's quite bizarre. Um, but yes, the name is not typically... Uh, although it is a Scots, we think possibly oh, originally the, Irish name, okay. but but certainly it has a Jamaican ring to it for sure. Right. This so is the records. So this this picture of you with your, your parents and you as a young lad and um, living, I think, for a while in Libya. I think was it in Tripoli. And, and uh, but these are the two records that you reckon really kick-started your relationship with this kind of music. That's my boy Lollipop by Millie and Al Capone. Um, uh, yeah, was it uh, was the, uh, the Al Capone uh, Prince Buster, Buster and his All Stars? Yeah, exactly. It's him doing the Al Capone's guns don't argue. Go he does, yeah. he argue. does that. Yeah, yeah. argue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so when did that enter your life? Sorry. When did that enter your life? Well, Millie was sixty-four because I remember hearing it being discussed on. Do you remember Jukebox Jury? Oh yes. Yes. Um, and. Um, I remember Pete Murray playing it and they had to vote on it but I also particularly remember when she sang it on Ready Steady Go and uh, she was handing out lollipops and she did become a a family favourite because it was just such a catchy song and I I did an interview just recently in Jamaica with Chris Blackwell and he, he described how that song literally was a million seller all over the world and took him and her all over the world. Although he actually recorded it in London. Forest, what was it, Forest Gate or somewhere like that? I think uh, it was. Studios in London, yeah. Um, and Rod Stewart did not play harmonica. <laughs> Although Chris, Chris Blackwell says that he did and I asked Rod Stewart and he said, no, it wasn't me. It was a guy in a band that looked like me. <laughs> and the band were a blues band from Birmingham. And um, yeah, so that was... Uh, Chris Blackwell producing that and I remember hearing it and then um, I was 14 then and in the summer of 67 um, I was really really aware of this new sound because as a young mod 16 years of age we all know how important that period in our lives is because we're discovering so many things for the first time girls drugs being able to stay out all night telling your mum and dad that you're staying at your friend's house, all that kind of stuff. And that was exactly what I did, and uh, along with hundreds of other youths. And I heard this song called Al Capone, and I just was... I, I, I couldn't believe... What, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out how they'd made it. Um, and it's often been described as back-to-front music, Scar, because it's the backbeat. It's this crazy backbeat. And, and then there's this whole phenomena, and it's still going on now, the whole ska fever, this underworld, this undercurrent of ska bands all over the world who were still making this music in the way that the specials did, uh, uh, but although it's slightly faster than the Jamaican version. So there's always been this fascination uh, for this crazy backbeat, and, and I, I got the bug. I just I found it irresistible. It was so incredibly exciting. I couldn't figure out how they made it. And I remember the first time I really heard it, it was a hot, sunny afternoon. I'd heard a couple of these records, but I was in Margate, and it was a very hot summer that summer, and I was seeking some kind of cool drink and just a bit of shade, and there was a place called the Grapes Coffee Bar, and there was a staircase, and I heard this beat coming from downstairs. It was mid-afternoon, and I went down the staircase, and I stood in the doorway, and it was a moment I'll never forget it was pitch dark there was a jukebox the light from the jukebox was a red light over the bar and there was no one in there and as there wouldn't be in mid-afternoon in a nightclub but I discovered later that they opened it at the weekends and in the week because they hoped that somebody would come down there and drink and I walked in and I looked around and this guy said he was a Jamaican guy and he said if you want to stay in here you've got to feed that jukebox and buy some drinks I did both, and I looked at the jukebox, and I couldn't believe it was a, an Aladdin's cave. So it was all reggae records? It? it was all Scar, Scar records. records, none of which I'd ever heard of. I didn't recognise any of them. I saw titles like Phoenix City, um, Roland Alfonso, Guns of Navarone, uh, Train to Rainbow City. Um, it, it was quite bizarre, and, I, and that was it. I was, I was fascinated, you know. Right, right. And, and I remember smoking weed for the first time in that place. Well, outside, actually. And then I spent three months trying to find a song called I'm Going to the Moon by Leroy Williams 
because that's what I thought he was singing and that's what I thought it said on the jukebox when I was it's actually called Dancing Mood by Delroy Wilson no, no wonder I no wonder I couldn't find it all these record shops I was going have you got I'm Going to the Moon by Leroy Williams no sorry mate you're off your nut. no really it goes I'm going to the moon I'm going to the moon and, no, and then finally I found it I was at a party upstairs and it was like sort of you know, uh, quadrophenia. It was all going off in this house. Everyone was, you know, at it. And suddenly I heard, I'm going to the moon by Leroy Williams. So I ran downstairs, uh, leaving my girlfriend going, what are you doing? And I said, that's the song. And, and he said, yeah, it's on Club Scar 67 and it's called Dancing Mood by Delroy Wilson. My, my lovely weed pot-smoking experience. Which ends of... when you interview Burning Spears. It's on the right? floor. It's absolutely unbelievable <laughs> bit where you, was so, so embarrassing. So stoned in talking to Burning Spear, you can't remember a single thing he said, and you know it's. A, it's a, and this, never took drugs again. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I did. I did take. I did have another go a few years later, but then I really had to give up because when I had a go, I was on my way to a very important meeting with the head of the jazz festival, uh, in who was staying at a hotel in Ocherias, and I drove up from Kingston, and by the time I got to. Uh, Fern Gully, I was so off my tree that they had to lay me down in the back of a Mitsubishi truck and then they propped me up in the seat the front seat of the truck and John Burroughs, the head of the jazz uh, festival came out and said Oh, David, you don't look too well, lad. What's up? And I said, I'm feeling a bit Uncle Dick. I've been with know. Burning Spear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Enough said. He told me to go back to yeah. my guest house and sleep. You know, I said, I'm not feeling very well. I never smoked again. It wasn't for me. But no. the Burning Spear moment was absolutely classic because he couldn't stop laughing because I literally ended up... I'd driven all the way up to St. Anne's Bay to interview Burning Spear. I'd been told that he was there, you know, seek and find. And... Um, he was in his community centre. He was playing football and he agreed to do the interview. And uh, the interview began well with sensible questions. And in the end, <laughs> just on the floor going, so, 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 trying to, laughing and not being able to configure any kind of question. And he looked at me and said, you're red. Meaning you're, you're off your head. Yeah, my eyes were like a road map. I was red, as the Jamaicans say, when you're under your ganja. So I never smoked again. <laughs> Wait, well, are you going to ask one more about this? Well, I was going to make one more point about, about yeah. Scar. That um, Do you find, you know, and it, interestingly in your book, you talk about all the various different waves of each chapter pretty much starts with a different wave of music coming through Jamaica or coming or from Jamaica. Do you find that Scar kind of endures more than almost anything else? Scar has endured more than anything It, it has. It why, absolutely why has. I think because it's got this incredible energy. It's impossible not to dance to Scar records. Dun, 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 dun. Da, 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 da. I mean... Uh, I mean, OK, I know Madness made it, you know, and other, there have been cover versions, but... Somebody sent me a fanzine the other day, and it's been going since 1979, from um, Newbury in Berkshire. <laughs> scar bands from Newbury. That, I mean, scar bands, plural. And uh, Japan, Italy. You want to know about scar bands? Go to Italy, Switzerland. It is a phenomena. And the only... The, David, the only explanation I can give is the sheer energy yeah. that it, it gives. And... Um, uh, one of the specials said, uh, we did it faster than the Jamaicans because we wanted to get paid quicker. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Go on, Mark. Well, I was going to say, th these were just two, again, key moments. When, when, one, when you meet Bob Marley in 1973, I think, at the Fulham Greyhound. And the other seeing Toots and the Maytals, I think, was it the, the Bouncing Ball The Bouncing Peckham Ball in Peckham, like yeah, yeah. And just, just brilliant. And this is roughly what you look like at the time, I don't know if you can see that. Absolutely, picture, right? yeah, my, my John Peel impression. You and, and that's great, because all your mates are listening to, you know, Cream yeah. and Crosby, Stills and Nash and stuff, and you are completely addicted to this. Yeah, kind of uh, secretly addicted in the end, because it became a little bit embarrassing. So I had my record collection sort of in my bottom of my cupboard in my room. Yeah. And I was, you know, in the way that Peter... Denied Christ. I, at one stage in my career, I actually denied 
this music because it really did have a terrible stigma attached to it, as David was saying earlier on. Um, there was a period when the skinheads, not all of them, let's be clear about this, uh, an element of the skinhead fraternity uh, adopted this music um, but, well, they all loved the music because it was so danceable, but an element were racist and uh, what they were doing was, was obnoxious. So that tarnished the music. I mean, Lee Gopthal of Trojan Records famously said, it's bad enough trying to get airplay. Now we've got the skinheads giving this music a really bad image. So, yeah, people were bemused as to why someone who looked like a hippie yeah. would possibly be into uh, to reggae. So, so you were living in a flat that. with a bunch of blokes, were you, at the, at the time? Sorry? Were well, you were living in a flat with a yeah, bunch of blokes? Well, yeah, they were all students. We'd all not, you know, student, most of them had finished college, but students and ex-students. And uh, one night they were all going to the pub and that one of them, a guy called Mick, had this state-of-the-art, amazing sound system in his front room on his big house in Gunnersby Park. And I used to covered this mach- this whole system thinking one day you know when they're not in i can get one of my records and bring it down and play them <laughs> and they said well, it was a, it was a third friday night. we're going off to the pub you come in i said oh no i think i'll just hang back you know so okay then and off they went and and you know and i ran upstairs i got you roy's version galore album if you roy's listening to this our podcast in Kingston, Jamaica. He may never speak to me again. But I was obsessed with this Uroy album called Version Galore, and I bought it in Chiswick, in a record shop in Chiswick. And um, I brought it downstairs, and I put it on, and I turned everything up to full. Full bass, a bit more mid-range, put the tops on it, so it was spitting, and I was pretending that I was in a Jamaican sound system experience. you know, And it was phenomenal. And... Uh, and he was, all these versions, goes, it was the original MC before, this is the beginnings of rap, as we all know. So I was fascinated by what they were doing, because it was so completely different. And the next thing, whatever way I turned, all four of them were standing in the doorway of the front room, absolutely aghast. And Mick said, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and I said, um... I'm listening to the U Roy album. Who the hell's U Roy? They didn't get it. Is this your, is this your music? I said, well, yeah, <laughs> well, I brought it for a mate. Yeah, sometimes. You know, sometimes. Yeah. Well, I'll I take, it, I'll take it off. It was, it was a classic one. Just uh, trying it out. Yeah, yeah. But, and then after that, I realised, you know what? And when I first went to college, another college after that, the, the other three people in the flat said, you really like reggae? And I said, yeah, well, you know, if you don't mind, it's not the kind of thing we're into. But you know what? Ironically, all of those individuals became, at the end of the college period, real, genuine fans of the music. Robin Sampson was a pianist, a classical pianist. He said, I never thought I could possibly get into your music. He said, but as a result of listening to you playing it in your room, he said, I've become familiar with it, and there are some beautiful pieces. And um, one of his favourite songs was Pass It On by the Whalers. And, and that's the great thing about the music. And uh, it, it, is, it has so many beautiful pieces that can be extolled forever as far as I'm concerned. And, and I realised then that I, I, was, I was so in love with this music, I, 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 would, I would never deny it again. But the people who had the greatest prejudice against the music were kind of rock fans, weren't they? Oh, big time. They, they, the rock fraternity found this music Totally unacceptable. Until and John Peel got hate mail, didn't he? Uh, John Peel got hate mail from rock fans for playing reggae. Yeah. He played Popper Top by Andy Cap, Linford Anderson, and NGM made a record called Popper Top, Popper Top. And he actually got hate mail for playing that. John Peel. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose what changed it was the marketing of Bob Marley and the Whalers as a rock act by Chris Blackwell. It was a phenomenal move, and it was the right move. Um, if you listen to the album that they made before the overdubs, uh, it is very pure, straight reggae. What he did was he overdubbed it and put other arrangements on it, which took, transcended the, the reggae fraternity, if you like, um, and for want of a better description, it then had an appeal to the rock world because of its structure, its melodies and, and Primarily, it's powerful lyrical content. And, uh, and I remember reading those reviews and sticking them on the college notice board, saying, <laughs> I told you, 
Vindicated, I told you this music was special. And that's when I went to see them at the Greyhound pub in Fulham Palace Road. Right, and that's with the lineup with Peter Tosh. Exactly as it is. Uh, family Man Barrett on bass, Peter Tosh on guitar, Bob on guitar, uh, Bunny on drums, and he had a red fez on that night. And there's Wire Lindo and, um, on, on um, keyboards and Carlton Barrett on drums. And, and, and the actual show started with... And, and there I am in, uh, with hundreds of others in this hot summer's night. Where are they? Couldn't see them. They were actually squatting on the floor of the pub. And they started with, I hear the voice of the Rasta man, Babylonia. And the place erupted. And then they stood up. And it, we were just spellbound. It was the most amazing concert I've ever been to. And I, they were literally that far away. And you, you met him briefly. Yeah, well, afterwards, when I was walking down Fulham Palace Road, it's... it's in the smoke-filled doorway. Classic, you know, an enormous belch of smoke came out of a shop doorway. <laughs> so I figured the shop was on fire. <laughs> because for those of you familiar with the organja pipe, when you blaze up the chalice, as they say in Jamaica, or you inhale and then exhale, it just seems to keep coming out. It's not like smoking a capstan full strength. It's a bit more than that, you know. And it was a cascade of smoke, a belch of smoke. And when it cleared, there he was on a spliff. And, and there was Wire Linda with him. And I seized the moment and I rushed over and, and said, you know, I've waited so long for this. And he, he was a bit surprised, I think. And, and this car screeched up and he, and, he, and he jumped into the car. And as the car pulled away, I stood on Fulham Palace Road. And, and this is my moment of absolute glory. He turned and waved to me from the back window of the car. Very good. <laughs> Very good. But so... Uh, uh, Oh, this is the acting. Have we got time for this? It's yeah, so fascinating. Yeah. No, I think we were talking about I, this. I, I couldn't believe this section of the book where, where David talks about his, his acting career. That's you. Is it? What's the name? In Broken, Broken Tooth, Tooth in uh, Doctor Who, Doctor my Who. death scene. Yeah. And I think you you were of Ariel of the Tempest. I think. Yes, you were I was. That Tom in the Knack there. At, that's uh, right. And, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Traditional, and... yeah, Sherlock Holmes. That yeah. traditional uh, repertory theatre. Yeah. So how did you manage to knit these things together? You know, well, I mean, of... I take my makeup off, playing Ariel in the Tempest, and go in my bang bang sort of Triumph Herald down to the Stoke West Indian Club, where I was the DJ on a Saturday night. Sometimes with some of my makeup on, which did occasionally turn an <laughs> odd look. How do you, um, how did your friends in the acting fraternity respond to this? Well, they just knew I was a reggae nut, um, and they, they just knew that. I, I, they knew this was. You know, all sorts of people have all sorts of hobbies and habits and, and pastimes, and this was my pastime. Um, I was getting high on my own supply because I'd started purchasing records at wholesale price from an old buddy of mine who had a record shop, and I sold them on street markets in between acting jobs. And uh, I was even selling them in, in clubs um, in Stoke and places that I used to go to. You know, I'd, I'd literally come off stage and get dressed and then go to, to Jamaican nightclubs and uh, you know, pretty much the only white guy in there usually. This is this is a, a, a flyer actually from Ram Jam's record shop you you had in um, in Blackbird Lees in, in in Oxford and also in, I think Putney Market. And just can, can you paint a picture of what the world was like at that time? Because there was so little information about reggae. But there was, was nothing. There was you know you, you you would take columns from the NME, yeah. cut them out, and, and wrap your records. In. That's what it was I did. So precious to have those yeah. things. Yeah. There was occasionally in the NME and sounds and so on. There would be an article about the music, Richard Williams or whoever, and I was so blown away by this that I, I couldn't possibly risk losing them, so I cut cut them out in columns, and then I'd stick them onto cardboard record sleeves that I'd buy, to make record sleeves. I'd buy a, just an inner sleeve, a cardboard sleeve, and then make my own sleeve out of the article, and then just sit there and gaze at it. It was a ridiculous... I mean, there's something wrong with me, I think. My wife has said this to me. I think there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> but that's what a kind of stupid thing I do. And I've still got them. And, I, you know, Henderson Dalrymple, the, the future of reggae is here. See, I told you so, but no one was listening. I was on my own. I was living in a world of my own. Because I didn't know any white people. And I hardly knew any... I didn't live in a black area. I didn't have any black friends, you know. I lived in a small village in Kidlington... When I came to London, you know, I was in a flat with a bunch of white guys who'd been all university graduates. I didn't move in a circle, uh, a traditional West Indian circle. So I did feel like... I mean, at one stage, I remember thinking in London, 
you know, is it always going to be like this? I'm going to be this Billy Nomates who goes to gigs and stands in the corner going, I think that's the B-side of a Studio One record by the other singers. I think you'll find it's written by Bernard Collins. Boring bastard. I think I was reading a piece Boring about you bastard. the other day. What? I was reading a piece about you the other day, and I think they mentioned that if you asked David Rodigan, you know, at the time, he would tell you how the watch was No, made. that's my story. Oh, was my, that, that was about... No, my story, Reagan. it's yeah. actually... It's, it's, it's Jane Wyman's story. It's and Jane Reagan. Wyman said, if you ask Ronald Reagan the time, he'll tell you how the watch is made. Right. And I've always felt, oh, dear, I think I could be that guy. <laughs> yeah. So I try now to be mindful that... If there's a point to the story, get to the point. And that famous quote, if you ask Ronald Reagan, that's <laughs> how tell you how the watch is made. And I've caught myself doing it. And I've seen people starting to laugh, especially when I'm doing reggae stuff or and people ask me a question. And I find myself going, oh, no, I'm doing it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm off on a track. I even do it on my radio show, and I know I do it. And I see the producer look at me as if to say, you know, you're down in the bushes again. Can we get back on the high road? Because we, we need to move on. So you, but you were going to these gigs where you were the only white person there. Pretty much. And, and so how did you d- deal with this? You know, did you develop a way of yeah, I think behaving? I, that... Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I think in anything, in any walk of life, if you're passionate about something, people recognise that in you. And the people that were in these places were people who, was, who were as passionate about the music as I was. Maybe some of them weren't as passionate. Some of them were there just to hang out and have fun within their own community and listen to music. But um, I think if you approach anywhere with the right attitude, um, then uh, the, was it maybe an initial, oh, who's he? Um, but beyond that, if, you're, if you keep turning up, people um, might start getting the odd nod, you know. Right. And that's, that's really... It takes a while. It, oh, it, it took a while, <laughs> you know, especially is he old Bill, you know. Because yeah. <laughs> I was always being cast as policeman when I was working in television. <laughs> you're playing Detective Forbes from New Scotland Yard, you know. No, seriously, I, I just turned up because I couldn't help myself. I, I, I had to hear the music. The only way you could hear it when you were living in London then was if you listened to Radio London uh, for an hour and a half on Sunday lunchtimes with Steve Barnard, and that was the only time it was played. And this is how obsessive I was. When Radio 1 kicked in, there was the Mike Raven R&B show on a Sunday night. He played three West Indian records, one at 10 past seven, one at 20 past, and one at half seven. And I remember sitting my radio every Sunday night waiting for Mike Raven to say... And here's another rather interesting record from the West Indies. This is on the Blue Coxone label. So a new compilation album. I think you'll enjoy this one. It's called It's called Jackie Mito's Frozen Soul. And I remember him playing this record and he said, This is a rather interesting label. It's green and purple. It's called Gas Records. It's from the Palmer Division in Northwest London. And it's an interesting instrumental called The Horse by Eric Barnett. And <laughs> And to this day, I won't even take that record out of my house because I prize it so much. But this was Mike Raven's R&B show. This wonderful, rich, resonant voice. And this is the great thing about radio. Uh, you know, you, you listen to Emperor Rascal Saturday, you know. Saturday lunchtimes, it was late, midday, 11 o'clock. If you were playing football, and most of us were, there were chances to radios all the way around the football park because everyone was listening to Emperor Roscoe because he played reggae records. Stuart Henry played a reggae record at... Uh, at 12.28 every Friday. <laughs> and I used to run home from the school, uh, through the two fields, across the hedge, jump the fence, come running down the path, burst up in the kitchen door, my mother would go, yeah, I think you're just going to do it. And sure enough, before the news at 12.30, Stuart Henry would play a reggae record right. on a Friday. So from, from having been the, the kind of despised genre of music by the hip community... In kind of 1977, 78, it starts becoming hip, doesn't it? Big time. Absolutely. Yeah, this was Matumbi and Black Slate and uh, Steel yeah. Pulse, Aswad. Yeah. Why did that happen? Was I it, don't, was you know, I the don't. relationship between punk and, and, and reggae was Yeah, Mark, I just don't know. I think it has to be the relationship between punk that punk stood, for, it was a rebellious music. It was 74, 70, it was 76, wasn't it, really? 75, 76, yeah. uh, when it really kicked in. And reggae was rebel's music, and there was an affinity. And um, it just struck a chord in, in the minds and souls of, of people who, who loved it. And 
It was an amazing fusion. It was rock against racism. I mean, Sounds was the paper, you know, yeah. enemy. It was just an amazing time to, to be a part of the music. You know, going to the Albany Epford and the Albany Empire in Deptford and, and hearing those concerts and just... I was working in the combination at the time, and it was just... It was an amazing time to be into the music. And it became so mainstream that you did the Ideal Home Show with, yeah, we did with the Dennis Ar- Brown. Yeah, Dennis Brown. No, Dennis Brown. Unbelievable. No, Dennis Radio London did an outside yeah. broadcast from the Ideal Home Show. <laughs> and I was the host... And ladies and gentlemen of the Ideal Home Exhibition Broadcasting Live to London, please welcome Dennis Brown. (laughs) And he came on and sang Money in My Pocket. And all these people who were there for the Ideal Home Exhibition were... (laughs) Handbags. It was amazing. I'll never forget it. It was incredible. They went and bought a coffee table. (laughs) Yeah. absolutely priceless. So by then, you know, you're starting to get... You know, a reputation as a DJ. You know, so how does that how does that start? Well, it, 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 I had a reputation as, as a DJ, but they didn't know what I looked like. Uh, the, the audience did had no idea what I looked like, um, and so my first ever proper gig was at the Wills. Well, actually, the first proper gig was um, outside of London. Was at this place in High Wycombe. Mm. And uh, I learned my first lesson as a DJ because I thought I'd be terribly up front and cut all these exclusive pre-release tracks. And I turned up and played them. Within half an hour, the place was empty. And people just walked out. I said, this guy's crap. The guy we were listening to on the radio hasn't played a bloody hit record in 45 minutes. So I learned a lesson that you can be so up front that no one's interested because yeah, yeah. they want to hear some songs they recognise. But the real one was the, the baptism of fire was at the Apollo Club in Wilsdon. And... Um, I walked onto the stage, and what the MC said, ladies and gentlemen, the man you've been hearing on Radio London and Capital Radio uh, for the first time, public appearance in London, please welcome David Rodigan. There's an enormous cheer, went up hundreds of people, yeah, you know. And I walked out, and there was a deafening hush (laughs) descended across the room as hundreds of black people looked at me and went, what? (laughs) And then you actually heard, he's a white man. (laughs) They'd all assumed you were black, hadn't they? Yeah, they presumed I was black. Yeah. And because See, David, you were saying beforehand that there has been interest in making a film of this book, and I'm not surprised because that's the scene in the trailer. That is. <laughs> the scene. Yes, that's what that's starts the, one. the trailer. And the irony was that when I did the audition for Radio London, and because I didn't actually apply for the job, it was my girlfriend as an actress who said, because it was announced that Radio London were looking for new presenters and the presenter was leaving, so they said, if you're interested, write a letter. And she said, oh, you should do that. And I said, oh, forget it, I wouldn't do that. And she, said, oh, and she wrote on my behalf. I didn't know and then this letter came you've got an audition they stopped the audition after 10 minutes David Carter was the producer and he said I'm terribly sorry Mr Rodigan you obviously know about reggae but you're the wrong colour we're looking for a black presenter and I said well and I only just noticed it yeah well, I, said, I said yeah I get that you know so I left and um, it was a month later and my girlfriend Pauline came running through Putney Market with a letter saying they, you've got the, they want you to do it they want you to do it and I went back down and what they'd done was they played the audition tape to black producers and said you know along with other presenters well, who do you think we should choose and they said well you should whoever he is you should choose him and along with a couple of other people so Tony Williams and I started co-hosting it and I, I did all this for a good year before I did this, this show and um, when I walked out that night in Wilsdon, there was a deafening hush. And the MC said, if you don't start playing something, you're going to get a Jamaican bottle bombing, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I, I said, OK. Uh, and I, I started to speak. And I actually saw some people closing their eyes. Uh, they were literally closing their eyes as I was speaking. And I had an acetate with my jingle on it that I used for Capital Radio because I just joined Capital Radio. And the place erupted. And, uh, and I kind of passed the audition, if you like. Um, there was equally another moment in Jamaica, in Kingston, when I first walked on at a show in Kingston, in Kingston, having worked on the radio with Barry G. And Barry G made this big build-up, and there were screams and roars of thousands of people. And I walked out. <laughs> that was pretty heavy. They were like, what? <laughs> you know, you really got, I really got it. And then, of course, I had to go straight into the clash with Barry G, and I had this exclusive Gregory Isaacs, and I told us, story about it and the place went off and and then because I was a Barry Gordon who's a, a Jamaican broadcaster that they loved and because they'd been hearing me on the radio in Jamaica they just presumed I was a black guy 
Right. It, we, we should talk about the sound clash as well, Wait, shouldn't we? We will in a second. Let's do the, I, the, I, just, the radio. So, was, was being an actor helpful in this? Without doubt. Yeah, because DJing yeah, life. because I was a nervous wreck. I, I mean, the problem with DJing when I first did it was I was scripting it, and I was I was uh, very nervous. And if you listen to my early broadcast, I was probably talking like this most of the time because I'm so incredibly nervous. Because when you're an actor, you have a part which you rehearse, or you have a character, and so on. But when you're a broadcaster, the the hardest thing to do is to just be yourself. And I remember being told that by broadcasters who really I really admired was John uh, Dave Cash and. And, and Roger Scott, um, broadcasters like that, who had this ability to talk to you one for one. And, and one of the things I was taught was you have to remember as a broadcaster you're being invited into someone's room. You should just try and have a conversation with them. So at first I, it was difficult to do, and I eventually sort of got it that you... I took, you know, both feet, uh, one foot on the bottom of the pool at first. I was, you know, trying to find this way of talking to people and doing stuff at the same time, because... That's the thing that most people get scared about when they first do in DJ. Uh, you, you have to self-op at Capital Radio. Um, well, you didn't have to, but it was better that you did. And most of them did. So you had to know everything that you were doing and at the same time thinking and speaking intelligently. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, it was difficult. But um, it certainly um, on stage shows in clubs, I was able to use elements of my theatrical experience to be able to handle audiences. Because yeah. you, you kind of embrace the, the kind of contradiction, don't you? You know, you, you go on stage and you are proudly yourself, yeah, aren't you? Complete, yeah, off my head, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you describe yourself as looking like a bank manager. Yeah, well, yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, somebody... Well, the, the reason for that was I was on a plane journey to America and, you know, the golden rule when you're doing long haul, never talk to the person next to you because it could be a crashing bore. And on this occasion, an American turned to me and he said, um, um, what do you do? Just like that. And I just said to him, uh, do you know what? Uh, we'll just nail this right now. You've got three guesses, but you'll never guess. <laughs> and he said, oh, I like a challenge. And I thought, oh, here we go. And he said, um, you're a banker. You're in banking. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, OK, you're, a, you're an academic. No? OK. All right. Last guess, you're a lawyer. I said, no, I'm not. Um, and then I said to him, well, that's it. He said, oh, no, no, no. OK, let me have one more. You're a dentist. <laughs> and I said, why am I, why, why am I a dentist? You look like my dentist in Manhattan. And I said, no, I'm a DJ. And he splurted his whiskey out. He said, you're a fucking DJ? Yeah. I said, yeah. He said, no, come on, you're, you're, taking, you're, you're, you're making a fool of me. I said, I'm not, I'm a DJ. He said, what sort of music do you play? And I said, reggae, at which point he nearly choked. <laughs> He wrote to me, actually, because I gave him my email address, and he, he said, you really were genuine. He said, I'd never write it. So that's when I say I look like a, a, you know, an accountant. I don't look like a DJ, do I? Come on. No, and some of your, some of your, 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 co your colleagues have been very tempted to, 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 to sound Jamaican. And, uh, oh, yeah, no. I mean, but it's, I, it's, yeah. So uh, why you resisted that no, from, from I mean, the I, off? I, I, yeah, I, I didn't see the point in that. I didn't see the point in attempting to be something I wasn't. Um, that I think that in anything, if you're genuine, people will understand it and feel it from you. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. If you have knowledge... You have knowledge. If you don't, you don't. As my father said, you'll get so far on a, on a smile and a shoe shine. He said, oh, he used to, you'll get so far on a smile and a shoe shine, son. But remember, after 10 minutes, you better know something. Right. And, yeah, and yeah. it's so yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that if you do know, you, you get through. And um, I didn't pretend to be... Um, but you don't apologise in any way, no, do you? No, no, Which why? is a really strong yeah. thing. Very strong thing. You stand there and yeah. you make references to, you know, kind of obscure areas of Kingston yeah. on stage, you yeah. know. And, and, it brings and your style and the clothes you wear yeah. and all that. It's, it's, it's yeah, there's a theatrical element in that. You know, yeah. if you're going on stage, there's an element of performance required. I always remember Mansfield Civic Theatre, Douglas Campbell, telling me repeatedly in rehearsals, my lord, the king comes on apace, Mortimer, Henry Ford Part Two, will not be heard if you keep saying it like that. You need to throw it away. And I didn't understand the contradiction. So I'm throwing this line away in the dress rehearsal. Uh, he, he stopped the t a tech run. He stopped the run, which for a director to stop a run was a big deal, as anyone who knows about theatre. Yeah. And he walked down from these stalls. He walked up onto the stage and he said, 
I've been telling you for four weeks in rehearsal to throw the line away. I'm now going to show you how to throw a line away. He walked into the wings of Mansfield Civic Theatre and I heard him... And then he literally galloped onto the stage. He ripped the curtain aside from the tent and he ripped his hat off and he stood there gasping for breath and he said, My Lord! The king comes on apace. <laughs> and I said to him, and he said, that's what you call throwing a line away. Yeah. And I said to him, well, it isn't, is it? He said, well, actually it is, because at least they'll hear you at the back of the bloody dress circle. Because right. at the moment, they can't hear you beyond the third row of the stalls. <laughs> and I learned that he was obviously exaggerating, but the point was that in order to, to be heard and to, to be seen... You have to be effective in your gestures and so on and so forth, and that did help me. So tell us about what, what you've learned about DJing. You're in front of a live crowd, you know. Are there certain records that never fail? You there know, are certain things? records that never fail. Yeah, Go on, t- tell t- us. Uh, no, no, no by Dawn Penn will never, ever fail. <laughs> and it was 50 years ago that she made the original Rocksteady and she made the new version in 91, and... The 91 version is the one that cracks it and does it. Al Capone, well, not so. Um, the, there are certain records that will just. Rudy, a message to you will always do yeah, it. Yeah, Daniel Livingston, you yeah, talk about, yeah. Exactly. Although, so do you have them in a little kind of break glass in. Yeah, case yeah, of I mean, emergency? yeah. It, if it's all into, going badly wrong. Yeah, no, it's. And it never fails to work. And as a DJ, somebody once said to me, I was just dancing in the Bronx. And uh, it was a Jamaican hardcore dance. And when I finished, I walked off. And this guy walked up and he said, Radigan, you never played a Johnny Osborne? <laughs> I said, Johnny Osborne? Yeah, dog plates in the ghetto. You never played. I said, no, I'm tired of playing. You're tired of playing? Me pay my money for come here, you play it. <laughs> and he started to give me a real lecture on how dare I come all the way from London and not play dub plates playing in the ghetto when he'd paid his hard-earned money to hear me play my best dubs and I didn't play that one. I said, I'm sick and tired of playing it. He said, you're sick and tired of playing it, but we are not sick and tired of hearing it because we don't hear you very often. So never, ever presume that you are tired of hearing something because just usually that's when we're getting to enjoy it. I never forgot that lesson from that Jamaican. He walked straight up to me and he stuck it to me. Have we got time for the Black Music Protection Squad story where, probably, where, where you were actually threatened, your life was threatened for not playing certain records on the radio? Yeah, but the, 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 well, they said, yeah, I mean, they, they were, a, a, as, you, as the name suggests, a bigoted, uh, fearful um, organisation. And they were intimidating, and, and as is the case with all these kind of organisations, they never want to come out in the open, they want, never want to disclose themselves, and they made my life and the lives of other white people in the industry a living misery and hell for a period of time, because they intimidated us with a, a campaign where they just did some pretty obnoxious things. And um, yes, they, they did confront me with a death threat on, on a phone call, if you don't play... A, a record today, a particular record, uh, you're a dead man walking and so on. And the police investigated. We, we, as is always the case with these organisations, there's always just... A, I, I firmly believe that it was a very small group of individuals who were just bigoted racists. Um, and they had a problem with anyone white um, being involved in the music. And th- they had a hit list of people. Chris Blackwell, Tony Blackburn, Steve... There was a long list of people that they said shouldn't have anything to do... I mean, it's just kind of sick organisation, the Black Music Protection Squad, no longer in existence, thankfully. Yeah. That's another episode in the film. That's going to be, you know, that, uh, definitely. So I, I, I'm not afraid to, to ask, you know, um, dumb questions... Explain to me a sound clash. Uh, well, I'll keep it as simple as possible. It has um, the complexity of a game of chess. Yeah, it is, it is very complex. And um, it, if I can just explain the origins of it, which were relatively simple. In the 1950s, the music of the ghetto areas was not appreciated by uptown people. You didn't hear Scar played on the radio in Jamaica. 
because uh, it didn't exist. They were playing pop music and American music. You hardly heard local music. So the only way that people could enjoy it was to go to the local sound systems in the community areas, both in the central Kingston area, downtown, and in the country districts. And these famous Jamaican sound systems and mobile discotheques would roll in to towns and villages and string up and play. An element of competition came in in Kingston where you'd have Duke Reed at one end of a lane and you'd have Coxon at the other end of the lane. And the idea was to attract a bigger crowd. That was the beginnings of Clash. How did the, the sound system sound? What did it look like? And what records was it playing? And what they used to do was they'd go to America, work in uh, the farms and uh, the factories, and bring back records and scrape the labels off them and call them the Coxon Hop or whatever. It actually wasn't that. So there was an element of exclusivity. That's where Clashing started. Throw forward now to the mid-1980s, and you had the whole idea... It really started before that. But the idea was that you had to outdo your competitor. And people would turn up and listen to selectors playing cuts or versions. So if I played, for example, in the 70s, this is a way you could win a clash. If I played Rudy, A Message to You by Dandy Livingston, and I got Lee Perry, The Upsetter, to do an instrumental version with Winston Wright playing the organ, playing the melody, I'd win the You've clash. Won. Yeah, yeah. because <laughs> the Winston Wright version wasn't out. So you could counteract with instrumentals. So complicated. So then in the <laughs> 80s, it started with acetates, and these were all, everything was an acetate. It had to be exclusive. And then the whole business of dub plate cutting kicked in hard time. And that was when you had to have your name in every record. So if you, have, if you wanted a dub of Rudy, a message to you by Dandy Livingston, you had to fly to Jamaica, get to Clarendon, find Dandy Livingston, take him to Kingston, put him in the studio, and get him to sing Rudy, a message to you, Ruddy Gun, a message to you. Right? <laughs> and then that was your dub, right? Now, let's fast forward. All the sound systems are doing this. Dandy Livingston's making lots of money. Actually, he never voiced a dub, Dandy Livingston, as far as I know, but Desmond Decker refused to do it. Prince Buster did too. So it became... Some artists would do it, some wouldn't. Some realised they could make a lot of money from it, and some did. The idea was that there would be six or eight sound systems on a lineup. First round, non-elimination. Second round, someone gets knocked out. Third round, someone gets knocked out. So you've down from eight to finally two o'clock at four, two sound systems, four o'clock in the morning in the Bronx. And that's hardcore because you've got a very volatile audience, <laughs> especially if you're playing in Kingston. And, for example, there was one dance I did in a world clash in Montego Bay and Bass Odyssey were knocked out just before the one-for-one one, and I was the one that knocked them out. That didn't go down well, because what they did is they started pushing trees up in the air and branches. Then the <laughs> bottles started hurling down, and we had, to we had to literally jump, because the local country sound wasn't winning, and they felt that they should be in there. So it can be extremely volatile. But what happens in the one-for-one one is that every song that's been played up until that point, and, and, he, he, and in the one-for-one, one, has to be exclusive, has to have your name in it, and it could not have been played in the evening already. So it is incredibly exclusive. You've got to listen to every song that's played. Yeah. Sometimes they'll try and lead you into a trap. They'll tease you to make you play a song that you know you've got. And when you've played it, they'll play the counteraction. And the, the counteraction, up to speed yeah, with the counteraction yeah. is when they have named you not just themselves. So they've got vibes, uh, whoever, they've got Derek Morgan to sing a song. Uh, you, they know you've got the Derek Morgan. They then get Derek Morgan to sing the song for them about the night, naming you as someone who's going to get their head kicked in. <laughs> so you have to be mindful that there could be a counteraction coming. But you can counteract the counteraction. I've, it got to such a ridiculous point. <laughs> The one in Montego Bay, Vibes Cartel, cut... OK. And then you've got the bogus dubs. You've got, is it Jimmy Cliff or is it somebody pretending to be Jimmy Cliff? I didn't say it was Jimmy Cliff, I just played the song. That kind of nonsense used to go on as well. But you had this, the classic scenario. was Vibes Cartel, before he was imprisoned, had voiced a dub for Ricky Trooper. So Ricky Trooper played the dub. And he thought he got it. Because it was naming his, his opponent in the one-for-one one base odyssey. What did Bass Odyssey do? They played a Vibes Cartel naming Ricky Trooper. Because what, I think it was Vibes Cartel, and let's not get stuck in the detail, but 
I think it was. What he'd done was, and this is what started to happen, this is where it became really unpleasant, is the artist would say, okay, I voiced yesterday for Bass Odyssey against you, okay? So they've got a dub with your name in it that will kill you. But if you double the money that they paid me yesterday, I'll voice a counteraction to kill them. And that started to happen. And that's when I just said, enough is enough. This is ridiculous. Are we all still with it? You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Completely <laughs> lost. So imagine what it's like. There, I'm amazed that you do not see a film in this book, David. <laughs> well, I didn't. But scene after scene after scene. And that, that is another, one, another one there. Yeah. So, you know, so now, you know, you, you played sound clashes, but you also you played festivals and, you know, you, you're recognised everywhere, aren't you now? Yeah, I mean, I, it's I, taken I, a long time. It has it? taken f- almost 40 years. It is a long time. I told you I'd do it, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> Turn that rubbish down. <laughs> no, uh, it's... Uh Actually, my parents loved the music. I'm, I'm joking when they said it. My, my dad once or twice said, turn it down. But uh, he understood my passion, as anyone would. And I'm at Park Life there in Manchester on my own stage, the Ram Jam stage, a couple of years ago. And I, I, went out, I never forget that afternoon. And I think you can see that I got so excited that I couldn't contain myself or my pink socks. And I jumped up onto the turntables and uh, started going crazy. And uh, I think I just realised that that something I'd loved all my life had reached a point where other people understood it. It wasn't just me in my bedroom looking out the back window to see if anyone in the gardens next to where I live was remotely interested in what I was playing. There was lots of people interested in what I was playing uh, that afternoon and, and in other festivals. Well, look, it's a fantastic journey. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been a triumph in the end. Uh, and it's all, it's all reflected in this terrific book, uh, David Rodding and My Life in Reggae, which David will be very happy to sign a copy for you Thank if you, anybody David, well, yes. wants one. But would you please show your appreciation for David Rodding? <laughs> Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.